1: Welcome to today's edition of The Plumb Line, brought to you by Reasons for Hope. Training and equipping a new generation to stand boldly on the Word of God. You can find information about them at r4h.com. That's the letter R, then F-O-R-H dot com. And you can find their latest book, Glad You Asked, Answers to 12 Tough Questions About Christmas That You Need Answers For, at that website, r4h.com. I'm your host, Jay Rudolph, and the broadcast today I wrap up a visit with Jim Osmond discussing spiritual warfare from a biblical worldview. So stick around for The Plumb Line, and you can reach me anytime at this email, Radio at gmail.com. Support for The Plum Line is provided by these fine business sponsors. EPS Wealth Management of Phoenix, who serves clients in several states. Call them for a no-cost, no-obligation conversation about your financial concerns. 623-537-3657. Abundant Life Landscape, your irrigation repair specialist. Call them at 619-277-2410. And by Charles McLucas, Jr., founder and CEO of Charitable Trust Administrators, Inc. Learn about the benefits of a charitable remainder trust at ctai-ca.com. Support for The Plum Line is also provided by Simple Turn. Their online health resources teach your kids how health really works and how to avoid 90% of chronic disease. Get your family's free health course at mysimpleturn.com. On today's edition of The Plum Line, I'm your host, Jay Rudolph, and I am joined by Pastor Jim Osmond. Jim is the teaching pastor at Kootenai Community Church in Idaho, the author of several books, including the one that we are digging into called Truth or Territory, a Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare, as we continue our discussion about this subject of spiritual warfare from a biblical worldview. And Jim, as we start this edition here, let's just kind of go back over what we actually mean by spiritual warfare and there are quite a few scriptures that address this, maybe not necessarily with those exact words, spiritual warfare, but there are a lot of scriptures that talk about what spiritual warfare is and what it isn't, right?
0: Yeah, there are. In fact, Paul had really what spiritual warfare is in Second Corinthians ten three to five that it is a battle for truth, a battle over truth to liberate men and women from their mental fortresses and their excuses that they use to keep themselves uh, hostile to the knowledge of God. And uh, it is a truth war, not a territory war. We're not supposed to claim peoples and bloodlines and ancestries and buildings and cities and take back uh, physical territory as if uh, Satan has some legal right to that that we have to cancel through our mantra prayers and our formulaic prayers in order to do that. We are fighting a battle for truth by proclaiming truth and, and setting men free as they come to a knowledge of the one true and living God who is incarnated in Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of all who will trust in him.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, and the plumb Line exists to bring a biblical worldview upon all these issues that we deal with, topics that we discuss here on the plumb Line. And so as we look at spiritual warfare, it's one certainly, probably maybe more than others even that I've dealt with, where there are a lot of false, unbiblical views. And so we're going to spend most of this broadcast talking about the unbiblical practices. The first one that comes up in part two of your book is this Hedges of thorns. and this actually was a little bit new to me. I've honestly prayed for a hedge of protection around someone before. so I, I have used that hedge word, but uh, I don't think that's really the problem per se. You know there's nothing wrong with praying that God would protect someone. and I think you get at that in the thing here, but it's it's more this the whole doctrine or theology of hedges of thorns, right?
0: So there is a good example of how the spiritual warfare movement takes individual phrases found in Scripture and divorces them from their context in order to build entire theologies of spiritual warfare off of them. Uh, the phrase hedge of thorns is often employed by spiritual warfare quote-unquote experts to say that we should be praying hedges of thorns around people. If you just, for instance, say the prayer, I pray a hedge of thorns around Jim so that Satan won't deceive him or attack him or have any access to him, this is supposed to somehow create this magical protection barrier around the person that you prayed the hedge around. And then when you ask a spiritual warfare teacher, where do you get that from? They'll quote Hosea chapter two, verse six, which says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. And at first glance, you think, well, there you see the phrase hedge of thorns. That must be a biblical practice then to pray a hedge of thorns. But when you study the context, what you see is that Hosea in that passage is describing God's punishment on Israel He is saying to her, you are chasing after all of your harlotries. You are denying Yahweh. You are walking away from Yahweh, pursuing your loss, pursuing your other gods. And so I am going to hedge up your way with thorns. I'm going to make your pursuit of all of these other harlotries and apostasies so miserable that you will come back to me. So that phrase is describing not protection from Satan, but punishment by God upon somebody for their waywardness. And yes, spiritual warfare experts, quote-unquote, will take that phrase, hedge of thorns, and they will use that as some sort of a legitimacy for praying this sort of protective barrier. It's not a biblical practice. It is biblical to pray for protection. It's biblical to pray that God would keep us, protect us, preserve us, etc. But to think that if I simply utter the phrase, I pray a hedge of thorns around somebody, that this is found in Scripture, and therefore it's a biblical practice— by which we build or construct some wall of protection around somebody or something, that's an unbiblical notion. A lot of these spiritual warfare practices are more like something you find in a Harry Potter novel, where they utter a phrase or an incantation, a spell, if you will, and it sounds basically like a Harry Potter novel baptized in Christian lingo.
1: Mm, Yeah, and that really moves us right into hexes or curses. What you were just sharing moves you right into that, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it does. That's a, another unbiblical practice is the idea that we need to somehow cancel generational curses or cancel bloodline hexes. And there are people who teach that if you have a sin that has been predominant in your family, like drunkenness or lust or adultery or idolatry or New Age practices or something like that, that this demon who somehow is you know the master of this particular sin or deception— has worked his way into your lineage. And now generation to generation, this spirit has attached itself to you and your descendants until you go through the process of canceling out and repenting for the sins of your ancestors, canceling out the legal claims that this demon has against you and your children and your ancestors. And you got to bind him and plead the blood of Jesus over him. And confess every sin and confess every temptation that your ancestors may have been involved in and renounce them in the name of Jesus. And this will somehow legally release your entire family from this deception and from this sin. And of course, again, this is more of a new age sort of approach to spirituality and to the demonic. It's not found in scripture at all. There is a passage in Exodus that talks about God visiting the iniquity of the Fathers onto the children to the third and fourth generation. Exodus twenty, verse five: I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And all that passage is teaching is that if a, a father persists in sin and iniquity, likely his children are going to do so, so as well, and God will continue to punish every consecutive generation for the sin that they commit. And Ezekiel chapter eighteen. It is that God specifically says that the one who commits the sin, he will punish for that sin. If a son persists in the sin of his father, that son will bear the iniquity of that sin and he will bear the punishment for that sin just as the father did. And God punishes the sins of each individual person upon their own head, not upon the generations that are to come, unless the generations that are to come persist in the same exact sins of the previous generations. God is willing to punish sins, third, fourth, fifth. 10th generation, all the way down, as long as that generation persists in that sin, God will revisit that. If I had persisted in the sin of my father and adultery and drunkenness and what my father was engaged in, I would bear the same punishment that my father bore. But God says that He would rather visit mercy and grace upon a thousand generations than to visit the iniquity upon the third and the fourth generation. God is far more a gracious and a kind and loving God than He is a God who enjoys to visit sins upon fathers and children and grandchildren. Of those who persist in those sins,
1: yeah. And in your book, you you know bring up how that verse six, Exodus twenty, verse six, is oftentimes ignored by those who teach from Exodus twenty, verse five, and and teach wrongly from that verse. By the way, and yet, if you had a great great grandfather who was tremendously blessed for following Christ, that does not mean that you're automatically tremendously blessed as well.
0: No, that's right. Just because I uh, live a righteous life and pursue holiness and and raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord doesn't mean that God is going to bless, in spite of the sin, all of my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, down to a thousand generations, just because I was righteous. And yet this is exactly the kind of theology that spiritual warfare experts like Neil T. Anderson and Thomas White and Mark Bubick and others teach. This notion that one person's sin gets carried on five or six generations unless the people who come in those generations publicly renounce those sins. I mean, uh, Bubeck and Anderson in one of their books offer a kind of prayer that you can pray to cancel those sins. And for instance, they say, quote, I hear and now reject and disown all the sins of my ancestors as one who has been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. I cancel out all demonic working that may have been passed on to me from my ancestors. Frankly, Jay, that's just voodoo Christianity. That is a New Age approach to Christianity. I do not have to confess or renounce the sins of my ancestors. I had nothing to do with them. Instead, I am responsible for my own sins. Mm.
1: Well, and that leads me to one other thing before we go to the break here, and that is I can hear some thinking, well, what's the matter with if I, you know, do that prayer that you just gave there? What's the matter with if I do that? You know, maybe it's totally ineffective and doesn't really accomplish anything, but yet is there something really wrong with doing that?
0: Well, yeah, I think it communicates an unbiblical perspective on these demonic activities, on Satan, and on your own moral culpability. I I don't know why somebody would want to pray a prayer that— is ineffective and theologically inaccurate as if God is going to honor that or somehow validate that and work through it. He's not. What God works through is biblical prayer based upon biblical truth offered to the biblical God from a biblically informed heart.
1: And so, again, it comes right back to where we started off the broadcast with, the truth that everything that we do, the prayers that we offer up, must be grounded in biblical truth, which means we have to understand the context. We have to correctly interpret it, and that only comes about when we're led by the Spirit of God. We don't have the ability to interpret Scripture ourselves. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us, and so that's really what it all comes down to, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's a right use of Scripture and understanding truth. That is what we ought to be pursuing. And as believers, we should love the truth and we should despise anything that dishonors God, any lies, any deceptions, any falsehoods, any bad theology. These should be objects of our ire. We should instead be people of the truth who love the truth and love the one who is the truth and incarnate. And anything that is a lie and dishonoring to him, we should eschew that and, and we should not be involved in it.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jim Osmond, my guest. Again, the book is Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare, as we discuss spiritual warfare from a biblical worldview on the Plumb Line today. And if you missed the first half of this broadcast, or the past edition where we discussed this same subject here in this two-part series, you can find it at places where you go for podcasts. Just take Spotify, for example, go there, put in the plumb Line with Jay Rudolph, and you'll be able to listen to this one here. You can Search for spiritual warfare to find this one or Jim's name. It's spelled O S M A N, Jim Osman. And uh, by the way, you can find out more about Jim and the the various books he's written at the website, jimosman.com. Didn't want to forget to mention that, too, jimosman.com. And you can reach me at this email, theplumlineradio at gmail.com. Theplumlineradio at gmail.com. Stay tuned. Open Door Financial was founded with the inspiration of using biblical wisdom to create financial plans and investment strategies that lead to financial peace and build the kingdom of God. We guide families and small business owners on how to save money, reduce taxes, get out of debt, build enough retirement income, and be more generous. We help you discover God's plan for your finances and fulfill your God-given dreams and purpose. Call Jason Bat at Open Door Financial at 619-794-7133. That's 619-794-7133 or visit opendoor-financial.com. Securities and advisory services offered through Centaurus Financial, Inc., member FINRA and SIPC, a registered broker-dealer and registered investment advisor. Opendoor Financial and Centaurus Financial are not affiliated entities. Thanks for joining me for The Plum Line. My guest today is Jim Osman, author of Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. And I hope you are appreciating this fascinating and very relevant conversation that we're having. I'd love to have you reach out to me and share your thoughts, comments, questions about the broadcast. Some of those I may need to pass along to Jim, but I will definitely respond. My email again is theplumlineradio at gmail.com. Plum is P-L-U-M-B, the Plum Line Radio at Gmail. Dot com. And, Jim, as we continue our visit here, I want to mention that there's no way we're going to get through all these unbiblical practices. We've got uh, things like uh, binding Satan and rebuking Satan and spiritual mapping and probably missing some others we're not able to cover. So I want to say that that book that I just mentioned, Truth or Territory, you can find that and other books by uh, Pastor Jim Osmond at jimosman.com spelled O-S-M-A-N, jimosman.com. So I encourage folks to go there. And- pick up a copy, and you know, even uh, the ones that we did get through, we hardly scratched the surface on the depth of material that's in the book. So I really encourage folks to check that out. One that I did want to spend a bit of time on, though, because it's always been a very intriguing one, and one that we have to just understand correctly from the Scriptures is chapter number 10, which is, Can a Christian be demon-possessed? I've heard a number of Bible teachers address this and have taken kind of different takes on it. I think most of the Bible teachers I listen to are solidly you know, grounded in the scriptures or I wouldn't be listening to them. And so they've taken the position that, no, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed, and I assume that's your position as well. But answer the question and take as long as you want to kind of explain what's important here for us to understand this.
0: Yeah, thank you, Jay. And for clarification, the the books are available at Amazon.com, so the, the link that you gave or the website you give will just send people to that place to get the books can a Christian be demon-possessed? My answer to that is no, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. And that's because every time that you see somebody possessed in Scripture of a demon, or demonized is actually kind of a better word for what you find in the Scripture. It refers to people who have a demon, people who are possessed by a demon, or indwelt by a demon. When the Bible uses that language, it is describing only the extreme case of being inwardly controlled by a demon. And now what? deliverance ministry people say is that the word possessed is not a good word because God possesses everybody. So demons don't actually possess anybody. God possesses everybody. But what they do is they broaden out, it's a semantic trick, they broaden out the word demonized to include any degree of being subject to the work of Satan. So if you are deceived or tricked or Satan attacks you with depression or discouragement or deceives you in any way, then you are being demonized and therefore you have a demon. And so they will then say, of course, that if that's their problem with you, then the only cure is to somehow have a power encounter or a deliverance ministry encounter or to have the demon exercised from out of you. In the New Testament, the only people who are subject to demonic control are unbelievers. Now, deliverance ministry people will point to King Saul, who had an evil spirit torment him, the daughter of Abraham in Luke chapter 13, who was bent over and possessed by a a demon, and and her physical affliction was the result of a demon, they'll point to them and say, well, here's examples of believers, King Saul and her, and that Judas Iscariot, who, you know, is referred to as a devil in John 6, uh, they'll say he was a believer, Peter, whom Jesus rebuked and said, get behind me, Satan, Ananias and Sapphira, whom Satan filled their hearts, a lie to the Holy Spirit. Those are the examples that they give of believers who are demon-possessed. And I would say that none of those people are necessarily believers in the New Testament, except for Peter. I think the case can be made that Ananias and Survivor were not believers, but instead false converts who infiltrated the church and were doing Satan's bidding and lying inside of the church, and they got the justice that they deserve. There's no indication that Saul was a genuine believer when the Spirit tormented him, nor the woman who was a daughter of Abraham. The phrase daughter of Abraham doesn't mean be believer. It just means she was a Jew. She was a descendant of Abraham. Peter, though, genuinely was a believer there in that passage. He actually confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son, of the living God. So he's certainly a believer. But when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, he's not saying that Satan was possessing and inwardly controlling Peter. He was simply identifying Peter's sentiment that Christ avoids the cross as that which is demonic in nature. In, in, In that sense, Peter was in that moment agreeing with the devil. But Peter could say something that Satan would have agreed with without ever himself being possessed by Satan or controlled by Satan. So the argument from scripture that somebody can be demon possessed and be a believer at the same time that doesn't hold from any of the examples that are offered in the New Testament. But rather what we do see in the New Testament is the teaching that the Christian has been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his son. That we have gone from being subjects under Satan's rule to being subjects under Christ's rule and we all who are in Christ are indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit and so greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Those are the passages that we turn to to understand whether or not a Christian can be demon-possessed. We are possessed by the Holy Spirit, not by demon. That doesn't mean that we cannot be deceived or tricked or attacked or, in other words, somehow that we're free or immune from any deception from the devil. We certainly can be deceived, but that's not the same thing as being possessed or indwelt or, or controlled inwardly or outwardly by a demonic force.
1: Mm, Yeah, well, just a moment for a little bit more on this, and then I want to get to the Armor of God material that uh, we really want to close out with. But earlier in the broadcast, you brought up some names, and I think it's important to do that so people recognize that some of the teachers that they may be listening to are kind of sold out to these unbiblical views or practices. And one that stands out to me that you mentioned during the break here was Mark Driscoll.
0: Yeah, Mark Driscoll is involved with the Dominion revival movie. He's also a continuationist who, of course, if he is, he would have to believe that exorcisms and deliverance ministries are biblical and that we should be confronting demons and and casting down demons or rebuking devils, etc. So Mark Driscoll is, I think, from that perspective, a very dangerous teacher.
1: Mm. So what is this movie that we need to watch out for?
0: Well, there's two of them that have come out recently. One of them is produced by Greg Locke. Yeah, he's pastor down in Tennessee. That's the movie Come Out in Jesus' Name. It's all about his deliverance ministry emphasis and how he's doing exorcisms and confronting demons. Then there is Domino Revival, which is produced by some of the same characters that are in Greg Locke's movie, Alexander Pagani and Isaiah Saldivar and Mark Driscoll somehow involved in that. I haven't watched that second one yet, but I have watched it Come Out in Jesus' Name. Mm,
1: thank you. Again, some people may question why we do that, but uh, Paul did that, the Apostle Paul himself, called out, right. called out names frequently. So, yeah, and that's we just want to do that as a warning uh, to watch out for those false teachings and teachers. Now, let's close out here with what is the most important of all, the true, genuine Word of God that we want to focus on here. And your last section of a biblical approach to spiritual warfare, truth or territory, the book that we're looking at is discussing the armor of God from Ephesians 6. and. I I realize we don't have a lot of time here yet, but at the same time, I want to read the scripture itself, because that's where the power is found. And so I'm going to read from Ephesians 6. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in Thankfully, all the years in radio, I've been kind of trained to read fast, and so I flew through that. I wish I could just not have to fly through it so quickly here, but I don't want to take away from your time here. You take the time that you need and explain the importance of understanding properly the armor of God when we're talking about how to approach spiritual warfare.
0: Yeah, a lot of people take the armor of God in Ephesians 6 as if it is its own standalone passage and entirely unrelated to the rest of the book of Ephesians, but you'll notice that it's in Ephesians 6 and not in Ephesians 1, because the armor of God passage is the conclusion to the book of Ephesians. So when Paul talks about, for instance, your loins gird with truth, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace shodding your feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, these ideas, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation. They're all themes that Paul has been developing for five chapters, all the way up till Ephesians chapter 6, actually five and a half chapters. So those themes of truth and righteousness and the gospel, etc., have all been developed in the book of Ephesians. And most people don't think to look back through the book of Ephesians to find out what has Paul said about these things. And so a lot of people have a biblical view of what it means to put on the armor of God. They think that each day we are supposed to take up one piece of the armor and having pray through it, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm now girding my loins with truth. And so I'm putting on the belt of truth today and may truth guard my mind and truth guard my heart and may truth do this. And now, Lord, I take the breastplate of righteousness and they're supposed to mentally kind of appropriate or put on these spiritual pieces of armor. And of course, spiritual warfare experts will tell you that if you fail to pick up or take up. Any one of these pieces of armor, you're leaving yourself open to the deception of the devil and and a way in which Satan can gain access and influence and claim territory over you. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is is he is saying, take up all of the things that I've been talking about, truth, righteousness, the gospel, peace, faith, salvation, and apply these things to your life. Begin to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called, Ephesians 4, verse 1. And that means to walk in truth, to live in truth, to apply the righteousness of God to our our conduct and our faith, and to be ready with the gospel of peace and take up the shield of faith. So we are intended to take the armor of God as an instruction by which we walk in these things in our day-to-day walk, live in them, not praying up these mental images into our hearts and our minds as if it's some mystical approach to sort of guarding ourselves from the devil, the Apostle Paul is simply saying, walk in truth, walk in righteousness, walk in the gospel of peace, walk in faith, walk in salvation, take the sword of the Spirit. This is our protection, this is our armor, this is what God has given to us so that we may live victorious and God-honoring and obedient Christian lives. That is what the armor of God is intended to teach us.
1: Mm, I so appreciate that, and I so appreciate your time digging into this. Again, there is a lot more that I wish we had time to discuss, but people can pick up Truth or Territory, a biblical approach to spiritual warfare. Thank you, Jim, for being my guest.
0: Thank you, Jay. I appreciate the time and your attention to detail this. Thank
1: you. Jim Osmond, my guest, uh, again, talking about spiritual warfare from a biblical worldview on The Plumb Line today. Thank you and the listening audience for tuning in, and I do appreciate as well if you would support the businesses that you have heard from during the broadcast here. It's those Christian-owned businesses that make this broadcast uh, possible to be heard in your area. They cover the airtime costs, so say thanks to them and do business with them if you can utilize any of their services. Reach out to me anytime at this email, radio at gmail.com. Plum is P-L-U-M-B, Radio at gmail.com. We'll see you next time on The Plum Line. The Plum Line has been sponsored by Reasons for Hope. Check them out at r4h.com.